0: Women have fought for equality since long before the first version of the ERA, Equal Rights Amendment, was written by Alice Paul and Crystal Eastman and introduced in Congress in December of 1923. Feminism, loosely defined as the belief in social, economic, and political equality of the sexes, has undergone a drastic change over the years. The first wave of feminism in the 19th and 20th centuries focused largely on equal treatment and the basic rights like voting the second wave attracted the daughters of college educated moms who sought to change cultural gender roles in the 60s and 70s the third wave began in the 1990s and started to veer the goals of feminism away from women and link it with other groups Organizations like the Third Wave Foundation define this movement as supporting groups and individuals working toward gender, racial, economic, and social justice. The existence of a fourth wave is kind of debatable. I, I think it happened, um, but it's debatable as to what it happened or what happened or why. Uh, but it seems like there was another shift in the goals of feminism after 2012, with movements like Me Too and Believe All Women taking the forefront, at least in social media and the mainstream media. An uncredited writer for Stanford.edu's Arcade argued that a fifth wave started in 2014 and is embodied by, quote, organized political activism in its right radical fight against sexual abuse on every level and its keen distress at the overwhelming pressure of entrenched misogyny End quote. I would argue that this is just an extension of the fourth wave the actual fifth wave may have started when congress passed the deceptively named equality act H.R. 5, in 2021. This legislation, if passed by the Senate, will effectively end the feminism of old and redefine the term woman to include anyone who identifies as one. Supreme Court nominee Ketanji Brown Jackson recently celebrated being the first black woman elevated to our country's highest court. Just weeks after, during her confirmation, she stated that she couldn't define what a woman is because she's not a biologist. God is not a biologist either, but as the creator of both men and women, I would argue that God's opinion should be heard. Welcome to another glorious day in God's creation. I am John Kowalski, and this is Rise Up!, a podcast about life's challenges with solutions found in the word of God. Walsh of the Daily Wire recently released a documentary called What is a Woman? in answer to Justice Brown Jackson's lack of biological training. Walsh is also not a biologist but he was able to find people from every walk of life who could define what a woman is. Proponents of gender and identity politics largely ignored the work as did the mainstream media. Many claiming they refused to watch it on ideological grounds. Uh, Although, if they were real intellectuals, they would have watched it and given a response, feedback. Um, But that's not the world we live in anymore. Uh, I would think that, that these mainstream media sources would revel in a chance to argue their ideology but still, they refuse and just continue to yell bigot at the sky. The one criticism I have heard from people strong enough to watch it uh, is that there's a glaring omission of God and the Bible in the piece. Walsh did explain why on his podcast. Um, He says that all truth comes from God. So the truth he uncovered rises to that standard. I do love his enthusiasm, but I decided to try to fill in those blanks anyway. In Genesis 127, God made a simple statement of fact that the rebelliousness of man grew into a millennia long debate. It says, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. It didn't take long for mankind to question even this. Here we are in 2022, still arguing about these six words, male and female, he created them. There are two genders designed for making mankind to thrive, man and woman. The gender identities of today's culture are masks that we wear because we can't, or don't, or won't, accept who we were born to be. Culture tells us, to be a woman, we must conform to these values, ideals, or societal norms. If you don't meet these criteria, then you should transition to some gender identity that suits your personality. God says you are who he says you are, and he accepts you if you believe in him. Accept his grace gift of sa- and of sacrificial salvation. So, given these two options, who is really accepting you for who you are, and who is really forcing you to conform? A woman identified as only Mary wrote an article on... Uh, on the Healthy Christian Home website entitled 12 characteristics of godly woman, how to become a true woman of God. I'm going to use the list, but instead of reading her article to you word for word, you can click on it in the podcast notes and go read the whole thing yourself. I'm going to do what the Bible tells us to do. I'm going to hold up her list to the standard of the word of God. Okay, so let's start. Number one, A godly woman raises children. Uh, Her quote here is, be assured, mama, that the act of raising children, which is at times belittled in the eyes of society, is one of the most godly acts of service you can do. Okay? So, some women in the Bible found their personal identity in motherhood, right? Sarah comes to mind though not always patient she eventually resolved herself to trust god's plan and isaac was born to father god's chosen people hannah took this trust a step further when she dedicated her son samuel to the service of god mary in choosing the characteristic of motherhood is an understandable and needed reminder in an increasingly postmodern society that seeks to redefine motherhood and even argue that the title shouldn't be restricted to biological females. All of that said, I don't think God's mandate for women to raise children is limited to mothers. There is room for other strong female leaders in the lives of our children. There are other relatives like Timothy's grandmother Lois in 2 Timothy 1.5 where it says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, faith that dwelt, dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you. Right? Those women who pour into children, whether their own their grandchildren are not even related. There are teachers like Priska, leaders like Phoebe, and role models like Deborah in Judges 4, Esther, and Naomi. Our children should have consistent godly men and women pouring into their lives through the filter of their parents. It is exactly the fight for our society, I'm sorry, it's exactly the fight our society is battling today as our government and educators seem to think that they can fill our kids with sinful ideas and then keep it from the parents. Number two, a godly woman shows hospitality. Um, Mary the writer adds, when it comes to hospitality, less is more, connection is what counts. This might bring you to thinking about uh, Mary and Martha in Luke 10. Uh, Martha hurriedly prepared food and doted on the guests, while Mary sat at the feet of Jesus, listening intently. Uh, When Martha complained about Mary's lack of effort to help her, Jesus answered in verse 41, But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Number 3. A godly woman is a servant. Mary says, brainstorm little ways that you can serve. These often become big things to the recipients. Wait, didn't Jesus just say that Mary was better off listening than Martha was by serving? The word servant is another problematic word in the 21st century, right? To be fair, it wasn't all that popular a term in the first century either. Many disciples of Jesus were women and they served the community in the same way as the men following Jesus did. Jesus never divided his students by gender. He never said men go out and women wash the socks. Paul despite being accused of denying women a voice in the church, used them in his ministry and churches in a variety of ways. In Romans, Paul went to great lengths to thank many who were instrumental in his missionary journeys and church plants. Romans 16, 1 through 16 lists some of those instrumental people and leaders, many of which who were women. And I'm going to go through them and I'm focusing specifically on the women. So I'm, bouncing around a little bit so I command the I'm I'm sorry I commend to you our sister Phoebe a servant of the church at Cantrea that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well verse 3 greet prisca and aquila my fellow workers in jesus christ who risk their necks for my life to whom not only i give thanks but all the churches of the gentiles give thanks as well verse 6 greet mary who has worked hard for you verse 7 greet andronicus and junia my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners They are well-known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me, meaning Paul. Verse 12, greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphanea and Tryphosa. Greet Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Verse 13, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who had been a mother to me as well right that mentorship relationship verse 15 greet philologus 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 julia nereus and his sister and olympus and send all the saints who are with them and 6 uh, and 16 he closes with greet one another with a holy kiss all the churches of christ greet you the real issue is how you serve and who you serve, not that you serve. Okay, being a servant is not a bad thing in the eyes of Christ. Remember Matthew 25:40, when Jesus said, "Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of these, uh, one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me." So when you're serving, you're serving God. Number four, a godly woman is modest and humble. Mary adds dressing modestly is definitely a must for a woman of God, but we should also possess a spirit of modesty. This one's a a, a controversial subject these days, right? Recently, Matthew West wrote a parody song and performed it with his family called Modest is Hottest. He posted it on his podcast in YouTube. It was cute and it was catchy, and, and though it was clearly meant in jest, it carried a good message for Christian families. As usual, the chaotic and loud minority quickly responded in an effort to cancel West for bigotry, racism, and gender bias. Even a Christian pastor, I will not name him, but you should search this controversy for yourself on YouTube or wherever, uh, because if this is your pastor, you are being led astray. He went on TikTok and made a song, another parody song about Matthew West's song about how his girls are allowed to dress as provocatively as they want in direct response to West's song. West apologized and pulled the song, While I understand his response, I disagree with it wholeheartedly. 1 John 2.15 is just one of many scriptures warning us against conforming to the world. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. I'll say it, modest is hottest. Women made in the image of God do not need masks of makeup or provocative clothes to attract a godly man. Find a man who thinks of you like the man thinks of the woman in Song of Solomon. Not the disgusting way women are portrayed in secular advertising, entertainment, and music these days. I couldn't care less if anyone cancels me. As Francesca Battistelli sings, I'm famous in my father's eyes. Number five, a godly woman is submissive and respectful. Mary adds, to submit is simply to acknowledge another person's authority in a matter, it is not assigning value. In the same way as women, We submit and show respect with full knowledge of our worth in Christ. I bet everyone hearing this bristled at the word submissive. Uh, we We can live with the word respectful, but let's pump the brakes a little on the word submissive. That's not for me. I'm a modern woman. First, remember, I'm quoting from an article written by a woman, so please don't kill the messenger. Second, Are you looking at the word in the context of the Bible, or the context of the word? What does submissive actually mean? The American Heritage Dictionary, a secular source, says it's inclined or willing to submit, inclined or ready to submit, acknowledging one's inferiority, yielding, obedient, humble, or showing a readiness to submit, expressing submission so i don't want to be accused of sidestepping the hard subjects so let's take the secular definition at face value it seems to me that this definition and your reaction to it depends on two factors right one who is doing the submitting and two who are they submitting to right so first who is doing the submitting do you consider yourself weak Soft, afraid, or willing to submit to all authority, real or imagined, simply to avoid conflict? Or are you strong enough in mind, body, and soul to know when somebody knows a better way that will benefit your life and the lives of all those who you touch? I think if you can answer that, you answer, who are you? Who is doing the submitting? Number two is who are they submitting to, right? Are you submitting to the flesh, the world, and those seeking only instant and personal gratification? Or are you submitting to the mercy of a faithful and giving God? Think about Psalm 23, one through three. It goes like this, quote, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in the green pastures He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Are you okay with submitting to that God? That authority? number 6 a godly woman teaches what it is to be good mary says making an effort to be a mentor to somebody to go out of your way to reach out to a younger lady will be a huge blessing to you both right think of phoebe timothy's family prisca who we've all already mentioned i did an entire podcast on mentoring probably last year so Feel free to flip back through on Anchor and and find that podcast and listen to it. Number seven, a godly woman loves her husband and children. Uh, Moses' mother in Exodus 2 loved him enough to give him up. She put him in a basket and set him afloat, right? Naomi loved her daughter-in-law enough to treat her as a daughter even when her son, her husband, had died. Number eight, a godly woman exercises self-control. Mary describes this as basically showing self-control and discretion boils down to being thoughtful, right? Thoughtful about others, right? Think of yourself less, don't think less of yourself. Um, Deborah in Judges 4 loved her family enough to lead a war to improve their lives and secure their future. Even when Barak Barak, demanded she come with him to the battle, she was resolute in seeing God's will for her life to fruition. Number nine, a godly woman is a keeper at home. Mary adds, if the walls of your home could talk, would they speak of a loving family conversations games and laughter or would they describe it as simply a place to crash for the night before everyone goes their separate ways this does not mean housewife necessarily though that is one of the most difficult and underappreciated jobs in our society home is where our kids learn in today's society both parents are working in most homes so these duties tend to fall to both parents The responsibility is even greater than it has ever been in a world where sin is celebrated as if it were an accomplishment. Number 10. A godly woman is kind. Do you work hard in the church uh, and find it difficult to forgive and show love to those who have wronged you? It may be like Eudoia and Sintish uh, in the Bible. Uh, that people will remember your unkind attitudes more than your acts of service and uh, she's mary's referring to philippians 4 2 there Um, how we solve our problems matters the world is watching us and judging christ by our actions in case you haven't noticed number eleven a godly woman is thankful Mary adds, she is grateful and strives to count her blessings in every situation. Do we act as if we're thankful for the grace gift of eternal life? Or do we act like petulant and entitled children who can never be satisfied? And then finally, number 12, a godly woman loves God first. Mary adds, we must be like Mary and choose the good part. Right In the scripture I talked about earlier with Mary and Martha uh, when she sat at the feet of Jesus. That was Luke 10:42. So God, then husband, then family, then church, then friends, groups, et cetera, down the line. If anything is before God, then you cannot possibly steward the rest of it properly. We now live in a world where a female circuit judge who's been officially elevated to the Supreme Court of the United States refused to define what a woman is because in her words she's not a biologist, right? She's a woman an educated, affluent judge who will likely be asked to rule on cases that affect the lives of women but she won't even drop the leftist narrative long enough to admit what a woman is. This is mind-boggling. Shania Twain is a singer. I'm not a country music fan, so bear with me. Uh, But I know this song. Uh, I don't know what her education level is, but I doubt she attained any advanced degrees in biology before writing her song, Man, I Feel Like a Woman. In it, she identifies some traits that make her feel like a woman. In, In the first verse, she says, She has no inhibitions. She ain't gonna act politically correct. I only wanna have a good time. In verse two, uh, she says, we don't need romance. We only wanna dance. Uh, In the pre-chorus, she sums up the benefit of being a woman as, and I'm quoting here, the best thing about being a woman is the prerogative to have a little fun, right? And then in, in the chorus, Uh, Twain elaborates by assuring us that women are still women, regardless of those choices, right? She says, men's shirts, short skirts, color my hair, do what I dare. I want to be free. Yeah, to feel the way I feel, man, I feel like a woman, right? Okay, I'm aware this is a dumb party song. It's catchy, and it was very popular in its time, but... What's most disturbing about this song in 2022 is that Shania Twain, in writing a silly but popular song, delves far deeper into identity than our politicians, judges, media personalities, and celebrities put together. She uses three words in the song that, in my opinion, debunk the entire identity politics narrative. Prerogative, choices, and feeling are the three words that speak volumes. Clearly, this singer-songwriter understands that feelings are not facts, that choices have consequences, sometimes permanent, and that who we are as a person has nothing to do with cultural stereotypes. Do you think I'm reading too much into a silly song? Maybe, let's dig in a bit, right? First, feelings are not facts. The title of the song indicates that she feels like a woman, right? Later, after all the truly inspirational, read sarcasm here, ways that she feels like a woman, she says to feel the way I feel. She makes no apologies. She's a woman. Her feelings don't change that. Wearing a men's shirts or failing to act politically correct and not needing romance do not make her less than a woman. These choices certainly don't mean that she should be a man. Number two, choices have consequences, sometimes permanent. We seem to have a desire these days to solve problems with the most extreme solution possible. People who have gender and identity issues do not need to be encouraged to make life-changing permanent body changes. They more likely need therapeutic help to understand that cultural norms and stereotypes do not have to define them. A boy who likes to play with dolls is not a girl. He just has interests that go against societal trends. So what? A girl who likes sports is not automatically a boy, nor should she have to be. Our self-proclaiming culture of tolerance and acceptance is a fraud. Society doesn't accept people for who they are and what they choose. They tell them that they must identify as something else and begin transitioning to that identity. Unfortunately, once the transition is started and made, there is no going back. Don't get high and mighty here, Christians. We've done a great job. I'm sorry, we haven't done a great job of acceptance and tolerance either. So this is not just on secular society. Number three, who we are as a person has nothing to do with cultural stereotypes. I alluded it to it just a moment ago. We reject God's design saying he got it wrong. He made me a guy who should have been a girl or vice versa. Right? We then seek a physical solution to a non-physical issue. Now hear me clearly, I am not saying that people who like things outside of their gender norms have a mental problem. They don't. I simply mean that their issue can be handled without drastic and permanent physical alterations. They simply need to accept themselves for who they are, regardless of what society claims are gender norms. Despite the fact that a silly song gets the right idea, progressive culture, with all their bluster about their intelligence and tolerance, still gets it all wrong. Not only do they get it wrong, they're doubling and tripling down on the narrative that's destroying people's lives and futures. Progressives and their mainstream media lackeys have raged for months against Florida's HB 1557, calling it the Don't Say Gay Bill, when in reality it has nothing to do with gender identity. It's designed to keep parents in the loop about physical and mental health issues of their kids that may be revealed at school. It also prevents teachers and administrators from sharing inappropriate personal gender information with kids in kindergarten through third grade, five to eight year olds, certainly not the wanton bigotry that opponents of the bill are claiming it is. Feminists fought for the better part of a century to gain equal foothold in a society, only to arrive in 2022 to find men invading their sports, jobs, even their restrooms in jails. Biological men across the country are not only invading women's spaces, but they're being rewarded for their efforts. With biological men competing and dominating in women's sports, how long before young girls decide that it's just not worth the effort to train and dedicate their lives to finishing second to a man? On March 15th in 2020, Breitbart ran a headline stating Dr. Rachel Levine The Transgender Assistant Secretary of Health and Human Services has been named one of USA Today's Women of the Year. Rachel was Richard until 2011 transition. 11 years later, Woman of the Year? What about all the actual biological women who have achieved great things for our country? When do we celebrate them? Enough politics. If you don't see what's going on in the world, then you are... Act, either actively avoiding the issue or you're asleep at the wheel. Jesus was clear when he warned us in Mark 13, to 37, be on guard, keep awake, for you don't know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you all, I say to you all, stay awake. Let's get back to the Bible after this break and find out what the Creator says about his beautiful daughters. all right i am back anyone else notice that i get a little uh riled up when i talk about politics that's why i try not to talk about politics too much but it's so hard in the world we're living in right now uh whenever i get the choice of good news or bad news i always want the bad news first right once i hear it my brain starts working on solutions even while i'm hearing the good news I'm already thinking about possible solutions. Often the good news even softens the blow, right? Or it might give some insight into the conclusion or the solution. Uh, So before we discuss what the Bible says a woman is, let's discuss what the Bible says a woman is not, okay? Paul defines the aspects of living in the flesh in Galatians 5.19. It says, quote, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissensions, divisions, envy, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's a pretty uh, comprehensive list, right? And you might argue that, hey, that's meant for men and women, right? It is. It's meant for men and women. And I'll get to that toward the end, okay? Uh, One, first, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, they're likely grouped together and listed first purposely. Sins of the flesh are the easiest way for the enemy to deceive us. He convinces us that there are no victims and our own broken minds are willing willing participants in this deception. Uh, Verse 20 begins with idolatry, which I would argue is the most commonly committed sin aside from pride, which really fuels all the other sins, if you think about it. Pride is kind of the stem of all sin. Uh, We may no longer carve actual idols from stone or wood, but we certainly have no shortage of idols in the modern world. We have money, fame, celebrity, just to name a few, all fueled by pride, which we spend an entire month celebrating. We're still in that month, by the way. Uh, How long until the other deadly sins get their month? Next, uh, sorcery is in the list, but before you scoff at the word and claim, oh, that's the stuff of myth and tale and Dungeons and Dragons and what, listen up, okay? I looked up the definition of sorcery and I was actually surprised by what I found. Sorcery is defined as the use of magic, especially black magic. Among the listed synonyms though is medicine. Surprising, right? I looked up the definition of medicine to find out exactly how it could be considered sorcery. One of the definitions I found states a spell, charm, or fetish believed to have healing, protective, or other power. Sound like anything so many have fallen under the sway of over the last, let's say, two years? Um, Yeah, maybe. So I guess that's how medicine can be sorcery. We've kind of lived it. And then lastly listed are enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. If you have listened this far and you're still thinking, what does this man know about women? I hear you. I am far from an expert on all things female. What I do know is that men and women are different but our sins are not. I am not going to tell you what to do or how to do it. I am going to let the amazing female role models in the Bible tell you that for themselves. Then I'm simply gonna ask you, as image and spirit bearers of God, shouldn't we be held to a higher level of accountability than the unbelieving and rebellious world? Okay, so let's get to what a woman should be. And again, I'm going right to Galatians, right? Just a couple verses later. um, Sorry, that one. Yeah, just a couple verses later. Galatians 5.22 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law end quote as spirit bearers we are all expected to bear this fruit regardless of our gender now here's the twist women of christ should be displaying and bearing the same fruit as men wow in that way gender for a christian is not really relevant We have the same objective standards to live by, and they're provided by the lawgiver God. Let's take a look at some examples of godly women in the Bible and how they exhibited these aspects of womanhood from Galatians 5:22, the fruit of the Spirit. First, let's talk about Sarah, Um, and we mentioned—I mentioned earlier—Sarah showed. Lack of patience at times, but she also showed great patience, right? She demonstrated overall pretty, pretty decent amount of patience throughout her life, right? Her husband, Abraham, had a covenant with God, yet he bumbled about making mistakes and telling lies in an effort to protect the two of them from the world to reach the goal of that covenant, right? He lacked faith that God was provident in his youth, so he tried to compensate with deception. Sarah waited for the son she was promised, but even her patience fal- faltered when she allowed Abraham to conceive with their servant Hagar in Genesis 16:4, uh, birthing Ishmael, whose line seeks the end of Israel to this day. Sarah was again patient and in her old age, Isaac was born and God had, as God had promised and from him, a nation would emerge, God's chosen people. Um, Next, number two is Esther. Um, I I would argue that Esther shows love, joy, goodness, right? Uh, Esther 4, 15 and 16 says, then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in the in Susa, and hold fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do, then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Okay. John fifteen thirteen says. Uh, speaks directly to this, right? In in that verse, it says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Uh, Esther 8.16, For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. End quote. What more goodness can a person show than the willingness to die for her people, many of whom she didn't even know, as John 15, 13 bears that out. Greater love has no, has no one than to lay down their life for their friends. God had chosen them, and that was good enough for Esther. Uh, my third example is the bride in the Song of Solomon. Um... She demonstrates peace, gentleness, and so much more. Uh, as a leader and protector in uh, chapter 1, verse 8, If you do not know, O most beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. So he's talking about how she's a leader in the home, in the community, right? Right? Culture is all for women in leadership now. It did take a few hundred years to get there, but we made it, finally. I'd argue that if we followed God's word more than man's poor interpretation of it, we'd have gotten here a lot sooner. But secularists, secularists, don't get off the hook either. You non-believers held women back for just as long with your stru- stubborn adherence. to to cultural norms, she was also devoted spouse and companion, which I talked about earlier in Mary's list, uh, in chapter five, verse eight. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, beloved, that you tell him, I am sick with love. Men, can you imagine your wife, your your spouse, your girlfriend? Thinking of you in that way? Book 7, verse 10. Or chapter 7, 10, whatever. Um, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. End quote. You are not less of a woman if you are devoted to a man. As a matter of fact, if you can juggle husband, children, career, church, etc., you are one of the strongest humans I know. I know this is a podcast about women, but I do need a quick sidebar with the men. Men, listen closely. We can do better in our families. We can share all of the duties of our households so that our family thrives. We live in a society that trades on trauma like we're trading baseball cards. Your family will hold you accountable for your failures. Be there for them. Trust me. The alternative is untenable at best. So many of us struggle day to day with envy and jealousy over relationships, belongings, and accomplishments of others. The woman in Song of Solomon has peace that comes from wholeness and gentleness that stems from devotion. She so loves her man that she lives to be with him. Everything she does is in service to getting back to quality time together. For her, there is no other man, no object that could replace him. When they're together, she is complete. And when they are not, she longs to be reunited. We would all be so lucky to have a spouse who loves us as they love each other. Number four, Rahab. Uh... I would argue she demonstrates kindness and faithfulness, right? In Joshua 2.14, it says our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we're doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. In Joshua 6.25, but Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho and she lives among the Israelites to this day. Rahab could have easily avoided the entire situation, right? She could have let the spies fend for themselves or even aided in their capture. God's will would have been done either way, but she didn't. She showed great kindness in aiding them And it was rewarded with a home among the Israelites for her people. She demonstrated a faith that was unexpected when she helped the spies. In Joshua 1, 8 through 11, it says, Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land. And that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard of how the Lord dried up the water in the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Now that's faith from someone who had no personal knowledge of God other than this. Number five, Naomi. Uh, I would argue that she shows uh, great goodness, right? So many of us falter when the storm comes as if we expect that following Christ means an end to all pain and suffering in the world for us. Do we deserve better than our king himself endured in this world? Naomi's faith never faltered. She left her home with her husband and two sons. Life took all of them away from her. When she did return home, they were all gone. All that remained was her daughter-in-law, Ruth. Naomi treated Ruth as family and guided her, a Moabite, through Jewish customs to get her legally redeemed, find her a husband, and secure for her a future. Naomi's goodness aligned with God's will as Ruth's marriage to Boaz bore a son, Obed, whose son would be Jesse, whose son would be David, king of Israel. Number six, Hannah. Hannah showed amazing faithfulness. I mentioned it earlier. In 1 Samuel 1:11, 11, it says, and she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son. Then I will give him to the Lord all of the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. First Samuel 1 Samuel 124 says, And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, and an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and the child was young. Imagine being willing to give up your child in the service of a greater mission. Can you? I have a hard time imagining it. It doesn't say it in the text, but I like to imagine that maybe Hannah had afternoon lunches and visits with her, with Samuel, uh, and the rest of their family, in the way we visit our kids who may live far away or are away at school. Next is Deborah, and Deborah epitomizes self-control I think Uh, in Judges 4 uh, and 5 is the entire story and song of Deborah and Barak Um, but Judges 4 4 says now Deborah a prophetess the wife of Lapidoth was judging Israel at that time this one verse one sentence reveals a lot about God's view of women right Deborah was a prophetess rare in the Jewish culture. Girls were not trained in the scriptures as boys were. Clearly, God had a plan for her life. She was a wife second to her mission for God. And that mission was judging Israel. People sought her, a woman, for that judgment. Barak may have led the Israelite forces into battle with Sisera, who was the general of Jabin's army. But the verses are clear that Deborah was the impetus pushing him to his destiny. In verse 14, it says, And Deborah said to Barak, Up for this day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. In verse 12 of the Song of Deborah and Barak, uh, Barak, it says, Awake, awake, Deborah, awake, awake, break out in a song. Arise, Barak, lead away your captives, O son of Abinoam. Abinoam? Verses 19 through 21 outline the strategy that Deborah provided to Barak to be employed by his forces in this battle. Deborah was portrayed throughout both chapters as the strategist, with Barak yielding to her knowledge and accepting his role as battlefield commander. The verses state, I quote, The kings came, they fought, then fought the kings of Canaan, At Tanakh, by the waters of Megiddo, they got no spoils of silver. From heaven, the stars fought. From their courses, they fought against Sisera. The torrent, Kishon, swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent, Kishon. March on, my soul, with might. End quote. Deborah's strategy was to have the forces of Barak gather in the foothills north of Megiddo. The tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali supported Barak from the north. As the Canaanite chariots tried to attack uphill from the Kishon River basin up the hills to, to the battle, they were easily routed and pushed back south down the hills into the Kishon River. They were defeated, and their commander Sisera ran from the battle, where he met his fate at the hand of another woman, Jael. So, you might be asking at this point, why is the list of who a woman is and, and what a woman is not the same for men as it is for women, right? They're both pulled out of Galatians. Uh, they're only a couple verses apart from each other. Um, I asserted in the last segment that God provided the definition of a woman in in Galatians 5:22 to 23 when it identifies the fruit of the spirit as love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Right. Verse 23 goes on to state, and spirit as spirit bearers, we are all expected to bear this fruit. Right. So, with this in mind, I say, yes, men and women are held to the same standard as spirit bearers of the one true God. The differences are simply in the examples the Bible gives us and the choices that they make as individuals with free will. Right? For example, I use Deborah to describe self-control, while I might use Elijah as the male example of that trait. The fact that Deborah exercises self-control leadership and unbending faith does not indicate that she may be misgendered. It simply indicates her personal choices and God's acceptance of her, no matter what those choices led her to do in his name. Right? This brings me to two points, all right? The first one is this. The secular world, especially atheists, claim that God is misogynistic throughout the Bible. I argue that that argument is simply distraction. I deny it outright. I'll illustrate this using Deborah again, okay? Consider a young girl of, say, five to eight years old, seems to be a popular age of consent these days somehow, Uh, And she's telling her parents that she wants to study scripture and become a judge for Israel She tells them later She would provide tactics and strategy for an army to defeat the evil Canaanites who were oppressing Israel In her time. Okay, so now imagine the parents instead of allowing her to pursue this for God instead they go to the rabbi, telling him that God got her gender wrong and that they're demanding that they transition her into a boy and treat her as such going forward. Who's the real misogynist in this story? The God who accepted her as a woman regardless of her academic and career choices? Or the people who would demand that she be changed to a boy because no woman could be, could be expected or allowed to do such things for her people? It doesn't take much critical thinking to see the answer, does it? My second point is that while men and women are clearly different physically and tend to solve problems in different ways, God does not hold us to different standards. The world has no issue with accepting or rejecting people based on ideas, thoughts, appearances, theology, etc. As actual racism, continues to decrease through common sense of the majority of people, American culture is replacing it with otherism. And this is not a word I coined. I heard it on a podcast. But it is true. We as a society can no longer tolerate anyone who thinks differently than we do about anything. Whether it be race, gender identity, politics, climate, or anything else, we simply don't have the strength of character to have an adult conversation about those differences. God accepts all who come to him in faith and understanding, regardless of those mutable characteristics. Gender is immutable. It is predetermined. Jeremiah 1:5 assures us before I formed you in the womb. I knew you and before you were born. I Consecrated you I appointed you a prophet to the nations You are exactly as God intended you whether you like to play with dolls or a football Choose a princess dress or cut off jeans work as a nurse or a construction worker. You are still a woman the enemy wants you to believe that you must rebel against God's truth to find your identity, just as he did in the garden with Adam and Eve. Reject the prince of lies for who he is and revel in who God made you to be. Show the young girls watching you that they can exert the free will God granted us without society forcing them to change their bodies to match their interests. There is nothing more intolerant than telling a young girl that because she likes boyish things that she must become a boy. God would never ask such a horrifying thing of you. I'll finish with a warning from Isaiah 520, which says, and I quote, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. End quote. You were born a woman because God intended you to be a woman. Regardless of your interest in life, you should be grateful for that life and the opportunity to be a motivation and an encouragement to the girls who learn from your example. You were fearfully and wonderfully made, and no societal demand, political agenda, or medical procedure can make you better than God made you. The only thing you can improve is the eternal nature of your soul. So don't wait another day to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, from Romans 10.9. Then, as his new creation, take up his cross and follow Jesus from Matthew 16.24. And then finally, rise up and spread the gospel of grace. It's exactly why those words are on the logo for this podcast. Confess, believe, take up, rise up. And it's why I spend so much time to deliver these messages to you, regardless of how many are actually listening. I thank you again for listening. I will be praying for you. I hope you'll be praying for me as well. Uh, I love you guys. I will see you in a week or maybe two, depending on how long it takes me to get the next one researched. Uh, we're going to be talking about something called the examine of consciousness. Uh, check it out. Do a Google search on it and, and check out what it's about. And uh, I'll be back with you to discuss that as soon as possible as always the references everybody i referenced in this is in the podcast notes uh and feel free to reach out to me with any questions or comments that you have until next time rise up